This is Chapter 13 of the WCBS 880 Author Talks Podcast. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. The Drowning King by author Emily Holloman transports us back to ancient Egypt during the early years of Cleopatra's reign. She came by our studios to talk about the novel, which paints the powerful queen in a new light. The Drowning King is the second in your Fall of Egypt series. Your first book chronicled the violent coup orchestrated by Cleopatra's half-sister, which resulted in the king and his beloved daughter fleeing to Alexandria. And we pick up the story with the piper having been returned to the throne, but it's not for long. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about what unfolds in The Drowning King? Um, Well, it begins where, I mean, this sort of traces the very beginning of Cleopatra's rise to power. We usually hear about Cleopatra and Anthony. We usually hear about Cleopatra when she first encounters Julius Caesar. But this starts um, right at the very beginning of her reign. The piper is, is sick. He has been sick for a long time. His power is fading. And as the Drowning King begins, he uh, meets uh, someone untimely or both time at once timely and untimely demise. Um, And it opens with Cleopatra and her younger brother, Ptolemy, taking the throne. Um, And Arsinoe, who is the protagonist of both this book and the previous book, um, is sort of trying to figure out what her role is now that her sister, to whom she has been very close, is ascending the throne and thrown into this power struggle with their younger brother. It's really the ultimate sibling rivalry, isn't it? It really is. I've got to say, um, I believe the Ptolemies and the Pharaohs before them decided to marry their siblings as a way of toning down sibling rivalry. Um, Did not go great. ends up with, I think, amping a lot of these, these situations up and throwing in the incest card, which also makes things pretty complicated genetically and otherwise. Um, But yes, and that's really what drew me to the story originally, um, was that I had never heard of Arsinoe or Berenice, who's the elder sister from the previous book, um, when I started reading about Cleopatra again as an adult. And um, I was really fascinated by what it would be like to be growing up as the younger sister to the ultimate golden child, this sort of person who's now established herself both first during her lifetime politically as this ruler and then has come to be this absolutely legendary character in the popular imagination. Um, So I was really intrigued to see how that would feel and how someone would react to being in that situation or finding themselves there. What drew you to ancient Egypt in the first place? Um, I've always been kind of fascinated with um, Egypt and the ancient world. Uh, What sort of, I mean, I named my cat Isis back in the day, back before before that. (laughs) Yes, let's clarify that was before the Islamic State had ruined the goddess's name. Um, So I've always been very intrigued by the ancient world. Um, And I was going on this trip to Egypt uh, in... I guess it was the end of 2010. It was right before the Arab Spring. And I started reading about Egypt again and reading about Cleopatra again and sort of getting amped up to go on this trip. And that's when I that's when I sort of came across Arsinoe in uh, Stacey Schiff's biography of Cleopatra. And I had this moment reading it and even reading this sort of almost ridiculous quote from this French, um, French histor- like 19th century French historian who was like, 
if Arsinoe was not jealous of Cleopatra, then she would not have been a woman. And like, I, which was just so like a classic, like French dude writing in the 19th right. century. And I was really sort of, char- I, I was really sort of attracted to the idea of like actually looking at that from a more complicated perspective than like, oh, Cleopatra is so beautiful. How can we not, you know, how can you not feel lesser than? Um, so that's sort of where I, I came at this. And I think for most people, that's, their idea of Cleopatra is this beautiful woman who had power and went for it, but you never really hear about, like you said, those other people, the other family members in her life. Yeah, you never hear about them. You never even really think about the Ptolemy dynasty and and not just the Ptolemies, it's the whole like Hellenistic world is coming to an end and completely seeding and falling to Rome. And that was sort of another thing that attracted me was the idea of writing about this empire that was really in decay and on the brink of collapse, right? Because we always see it from the Roman perspective, which is like, oh, she's so sexy and she seduces Caesar and she seduces Anthony and maybe she tries to seduce Octavian and like, oh, all of her power comes from this, you know, very sexualized, very feminized view that the Romans sort of propagated and then turned onwards and onwards through Shakespeare, through Elizabeth Taylor. And I was much more interested in seeing, like, how would we view her if instead of seeing her through the eyes of her lovers, we were actually seeing her as part of this dynasty that had been ruling, a foreign dynasty that had been ruling in Egypt for 300 years, seeing her from that perspective, from the perspective of her family and from the perspective of this family and empire that was about to fall to Rome. From that perspective, she still comes across as a very strong female character I, I mean absolutely I think that to th- to think that she's not strong I mean if you think about the women that we remember in history Cleopatra is one of the first if not the very first one if you ask somebody like who's the first woman you can think of, the like most ancient woman you could think of and I think that in order to be in that position she had to be very strong I don't think that she had to be as beautiful as she's become. And I think that the transformation of Cleopatra from a strong woman who used these, had these relationships that were both political alliances and romantic liaisons into this sort of, you know, very, this woman who's defined completely by her appearance when the earliest sources on Cleopatra, I mean, don't say that she's unattractive, but they don't stress her beauty. They don't and in in many times she was actually contrasted negatively with Octavia, um, Anthony's wife at the time, um, in terms of her appearance. So this sort of transformation from what is not a very understandable position historically, which is a woman who is actually in power, who is actually fought to be in power. I mean, she defeated her brother for power, who would have been the more natural choice. She did a lot of very strong active political moves and transforming that into this almost like passive Helen of Troy type character, which is much more familiar in terms of the way that we think about women. And you touch on that in the book with how you describe how the Romans and the, and the soldiers kind of talk about women in general and their feelings about them and what they should be doing. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, the Romans especially were, I mean, I'm not saying like Ptolemaic Egypt was a paradise for women, <laughs> far right. from it. Um, but Rome was had a very, very set way. Women did not participate in public life. They had a very specific way that they were supposed to be and interact with the world. And it was a very private world. Despite all that, there was like tons of like weird like sexual liaisons, especially because most of the women got married when they were like 12 to men who were 50. And then there were men who were in their 
20s and 30s who didn't get married for a million years and had affairs with those women. That aside, I mean, despite this sort of different sense of, of sexual morality that's sort of under the surface in Rome, there is very much a strong sense that women had nothing to do with power. And the idea of a woman in power was very threatening for the Romans because they had nothing like it. And the fact that, that Caesar could... I mean, I think what must have... Well, I mean, I don't know what was appealing to... I'm not actually in Caesar's head, shockingly. But what must have been appealing to someone like Caesar, who was so powerful, was the fact that this was a woman who could really meet him on an equal level. Like, she had all of this money and all of this power and all of these people who were worshipping her quite literally as a god. And there was nothing like that in Rome. I mean, there was no woman who could have ever been anything like a, a an equal to these men in Rome because women weren't allowed to do any of those things. Um, so I think that's sort of what's very interesting about this in, in terms of looking at her relationship with Rome is why that would have been so appealing to these men. And you mentioned in the note at the end of your book that the history that you covered in your first book wasn't really touched by historians. But you had the opposite issue in writing the second one where everyone seems to know what happened between Julius Caesar and Cleopatra. How did you approach that? I mean... It was tough because I came off writing the first book and I was in this place of like basically like, I mean, for the first book, there's like a paragraph in Strabo, which isn't even in his history, which is no longer with us today. Um, but in his geography that like describes like Berenice did X, Y and Z things. That's it. Like there. And then it's all filling in the blanks. Like, you know, she had two husbands and, you know, she had a coup. And then at the end, she lost. Um with Cleopatra and Caesar, there is so much. I mean, there's so much more. And it's even just in the second half of the book that it really becomes to be. I mean, whenever we encounter Rome, the amount of information that we have about Egypt is increased like a million fold because all of all of the extant sources are Roman sources written after the fact. Um, so it was hard. I had to redraft this book many times because I kept sort of going off the rails too far from like the history in a way and having to come back and be like oh wait there is a lot more that is actually known i can't just sort of like go with what could possibly have happened because there is actually like caesar wrote about this battle and i need to at least while he might not be a hundred percent telling the truth and he's certainly not being very transparent about his relationship with cleopatra at all ever um there is still a lot more known there so one of the incidents, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, oh. that you were able to take a little bit of creative license with mm -hmm. was the, the Great Fire of Alexandria, wasn't it? Yes. Um, which is, I mean, also, a, I mean, I guess the sort of complicated thing about no, even the places in history this long ago that we know well, there is still a lot of disagreement about. Um, there's some people really believe that the Great Fire of Alexandria destroyed the Library of Alexandria when Caesar was there. Many people don't think that the Library of Alexandria was destroyed until several hundred years later. So thinking about what was destroyed, what was not destroyed, the extent of... And, and the, on the other hand, most of the buildings in Alexandria were actually stone, unlike the buildings in Rome at the time. Octavian actually turned all this stuff into marble when he became emperor, in part based on all of the marble and stone and beautiful structures that were in Alexandria at the time. But yeah, uh, the library, the fire, deciding what gets burnt in the fire, what starts the fire, those are all sorts of things that overlap and parallel with various accounts that often contradict each other. So I know this isn't the end of the story. What can we expect in the next 
Fall of Egypt book? Well, um, I will say that there are uh, a total of five Ptolemy siblings. We have heard from three of them now. I would expect to, um, oh, for those of you who have not read the books, each of the first two alternates between Arsinoe and one of the first siblings' perspectives. I imagine that you will see the other siblings' perspectives who have not yet been represented. And um, we'll continue to follow Arsinoe as she fights to become Queen of Egypt, which... I think you probably know doesn't go as well as it could. But the story getting there is what's fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's completely drawn me. And I really hope that uh, other people are as excited about it as I am. And did I hear that these books may soon make an appearance on the small screen? Yes, um, there is. Uh, we are currently um, there's a British production company that is currently working on a pilot episode. I don't know how much more I am allowed to say, but they have optioned it. And there is certainly a pilot being written as we speak. You must be so proud of that. I'm really excited. And it's a really, really wonderful team of women who have uh, and, and it is very much like a team of women who are behind it. And I'm quite excited about that. Well, I think that's awesome. Go girls. Yeah. <laughs> uh, is there anything else that maybe I haven't touched on that you think people should know about your books? Um, gosh, I they're amazing. And you have not said that. enough. <laughs> <No>, um, <laughs> I think people. Well, I guess I, what I would say is. Um, that the second book also follows Ptolemy's perspective. It's not just um, it's not just about Arsinoe, and I think that exploring what it's like for this—I mean, he's quite young at the beginning. He's 11 years old. This 11-year-old boy who is really trying to be the man that everyone is telling him should be, and is constantly falling short, um, is really sort of integral to the way that the second book functions. And certainly was a big discovery process for me. Um, it's the first book where I've written from a male perspective and I certainly approached it originally as a foil to Arsinoe but sort of coming into understanding Ptolemy and sympathizing with Ptolemy even when he's not necessarily the most obviously likable of characters at times um, I think is part of what makes the book really really interesting and And, really and you do sympathize with him because in the end you realize he was a pawn in cleopatra's endgame yeah and it's i mean it's tough i mean if you really i mean how you can expect an 11 year old especially one who's basically been raised being told he's a god to suddenly be thrown into these much larger much more complicated global politics against someone who is very smart, very savvy, seven years older, more than seven years older, eight, nine years older, and really very capable is hard. And there's no there's no way to sort of see through how, no matter how hard you struggle, it's one of those things where you can't ever quite make it there. And I think that that's something that's very easy to sympathize with. And when you mention the ages, you totally forget we're talking about like an 11 and 12 year old and an 18 or 19 year old. Yeah, I mean, but that's sort of the fascinating thing about writing about this period of history is like our ideas of age and of childhood and all of these things are very, very modern concepts. And especially at the time, I mean, the Greeks and the Romans lived for a fairly long time. But Alexander, I mean, relative to like people in the Middle Ages, if they made it through childhood, you know, it was you could actually have a decent lifespan. But you know, if you're if you're thinking about, uh, you know, Alexander the Great was conquering things when he was 16 years old. I mean, this is not a time when we didn't have like suspended adolescence. You didn't have, you know, the same sense that, well, you know, you can take your time and, you know, you don't have to grow up right now and we're going to sort of protect you from the world. I think there's much more of a sense of 
childhood as training for the world and the world's coming. So get ready. Okay. Well, Emily, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And hopefully we'll talk to you for the next book. Yeah, I hope to talk soon. If you want to catch up on the Fall of Egypt series, the first book is titled Cleopatra's Shadow and is published by Little Brown and Company. Listeners of WCBS 880 are familiar with Dr. Steve Cusin through his daily Eye on Education feature. In addition to being an educator, Dr. Cusin is also a published author. Our Pat Farnack spoke with him about his semi-autobiographical book, Five Freshmen, A Story of the 60s. Has this been percolating, this story, for quite a while? It seems that way. I've thought about it for a long time, and I also teach at uh, Hofstra University, radio, Mm. TV, film. And whenever I get to the 60s and the war in Vietnam in particular, you can hear a pin drop. And it was one of those eureka moments. I said one day after class, this would make a great novel to write. And not a documentary, not a nonfiction textbook, but I want to tell it as a story. And that's how it came about. Now, you uh, went to Cornell 1965, right? That's correct. That was my entry year. And and there were a lot of crazy, silly, especially in retrospect, <laughs> yes, <they were>. deportment <laughs> rules. Tell me about those. We were told, walk the straight and narrow or get on the next bus and plane and you're going home. Uh, of, course, of course, the most famous one was from the, uh, the dean of deportment, the proctor. Uh, we were not allowed to have co-eds in the room except twice a year. I think it was fall weekend and spring weekend. And there were three rules. You have to have three feet on the floor at all times. The door has to be open the width of a book, and a light has to be on at all times. Now, we kind of played games with that one. Uh, A bridge table has four legs, so you're safe to put a bridge table in the room. A (laughs) candle is a light. And a matchbook is a book. A so we try to beat the, you know, beat the proctor at the game. But <clears throat> by the time I graduated in 1969, who cared? Because, in all seriousness, it was a life and death matter. Those things didn't matter four years later. And I had the opportunity to see that 180-degree turn, that evolution, that revolution right in front of my eyes. All college students have to, or most college students have to worry about uh, finding a job and all of that. But you guys, back in the 60s, had to worry about, uh, really, life and death. Yes, the military draft started your first year. Yeah, it, was, it was a strange juxtaposition, um, juxtaposition, Pat. Here you were uh, involved in all kinds of animal house hijinks and mm. fraternity stuff. And on the other hand, life and death matters. You would see people being plucked away, pulled off campus, going off to war, and uh, you didn't know what the next day would bring. We started off in a cocoon, uh, in a womb. 1965, we felt safe, particularly upstate New York. And then bit by bit, the war started to touch us. Tell me about the draft lottery was for you at Cornell. If it really was a death watch, because you didn't know what the numbers would bring, literally. It was like a bingo game. The birth dates would be called out, and we were told that, in essence, 100 to 120, you were marching to Vietnam. You were marching to Vietnam. 120 to 240, in the middle. 240 to 360, for the time being, you were okay. But again, nobody felt safe. And the numbers were called one by one. The room was packed. Somebody had to be number one. Uh, Your birthday had to be the first birthday called, and... Uh, it was very quiet. I expected there to be outbursts. There weren't. People were very quiet. There would be an occasional, occasional expletive deleted. Somebody would shout out. Mm. But uh, bit by bit, the room emptied out as the numbers were called quietly. Uh, when the caller hit 300, I wanted my number to be called by then because I, I thought maybe I had missed it. But I was 319. But I had no sigh of relief because some of my friends had low numbers. And it was just... I had a pit in my stomach. It was a scary night, and I had a splitting headache. 
glad it was over. But it was probably the scariest moment of my life. It was a death watch. You know, there has been some talk of bringing that back. Uh, you know, sometime in the future, uh, I, I don't. Yeah, I I've hope heard not. that too. If man, d- depending what our involvement is overseas, mm. and if there's a manpower shortage, I've heard too that it could happen. I hope it doesn't. I just hope it doesn't because the pall that it cast on the university, I just can't describe. There were a, a number of people in the course of five freshmen, including some of the five, who fell off the face of the earth. I'm thinking of of Kip was one of them. And I wondered why, in reading it, you didn't follow up. But then again, thinking back to my college days and even high school days, there are people who just go out of your life, and you never know what happens to them. I guess that is life. The five freshmen are fictional, except for myself. I'm real. (laughs) I hope you (laughs) Uh, The other four are, and one of the, my friends captured it very nicely. He said, they're every man. I try to create four other characters who are composite, who typify the four different viewpoints of students at that point. So none is none is real per se. But uh, with my own classmates, I did keep up with some, and some I lost uh, total touch mm-hmm. with. It was a very uh, dramatic end. If you read the book to the to the finish, when the takeover of the student union took place, we had a very anticlimactic end. On April nineteenth, the student union building was uh, taken over early in the morning. And in the book, I refer to something which is real. My father was one of the hostages who was taken in the takeover. He was in the wrong place at the wrong time. It was parents' weekend, and the procrastinator that I am, I had failed to get a hotel room for him. So uh, I uh, got a room in Willard Strait Hall, the student union building. I didn't know they had guest rooms. Pretty smart and desk, bed, and lamp. Mm. That was it. So he was close to the action. Little Little did I know how close to the action he would be when the call came that he was one of the parents taken when the building was taken over. Very briefly, uh, the parents and employees were kicked out of the building, exited the building very early in the morning. And I still see him standing outside uh, tweed coat and beret waiting to be picked up. But uh, that's an image I'll never forget. I didn't know what I was going to find when I drove across campus to pick him up. Now, you are writing a screenplay based on Five Freshmen, your book. Who would play the young Steve Cusin, I have to wonder? Let's see. Tom Cruise or Ryan Reynolds. (laughs) (laughs) I fit that, right? That would be perfect. Uh, One of my friends said to me jokingly, how about Richard Dreyfuss? And I said, he's not right now. He's not the young Steve Cusin. But I don't know. I'm I'm up for for ideas right now. But I'm excited about the screenplay. I'm a big walker, Pat. I walk in the morning. I pictured... I've directed the movie already because it does lend itself to action. And I'd like to get to writing that screenplay. I'm also starting a second novel uh, about being a high school principal, which I was for 21 years, mm. very different subject. Everybody thought this book would be about mm. my experience as an educator. But um, uh, the, right now I want to work on the screenplay and get that done. Well, no, no retirement for you, I guess. Not yet. No, no, especially working here with you guys, which I love at 880. <laughs> well, we love having you here. And once again, we're talking to Dr. Steve Cusin. He is the WCBS education reporter and also the author of Five Freshmen, A Story of the 60s. Very enjoyable read. Thank, Thank you, you for being here to talk about Thank it. Thank you for having me. All right. That's this week's chapter of the WCBS 880 Author Talks podcast. Let us know how we're doing. Email us at books at WCBS880.com and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS880books.